Last Sunday was uh, Palm Sunday, and Trent, as we've been working through our series in Leviticus, had us last Sunday back in the 1980s and back to the future. And uh, this evening, we're going to fast forward to one of the great book adaptations in the 1990s, Jurassic Park. Story of a man playing God. And that story, you'll remember, it begins with thrill, it begins with excitement. They're extracting blood out of these ancient mosquitoes that have been perfectly preserved in amber. And by doing so, the scientists are able to recreate life. Dinosaurs for all to see. And John Hammond, the owner of the park, he's constantly saying throughout the movie, we've spared no expense. And he's trying to convince us that they've thought of everything. Nothing could go wrong. But Ian Malcolm, one of the scientists he'd brought in ahead of the park's opening, he's got some doubts. And so he tells Hammond, he says, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here, it staggers me. Don't you see the danger inherent in what you're doing? Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. This evening we're in Leviticus 10. A story of two brothers whose lack of humility gets them in a little bit of trouble. They get so wrapped up in wondering if they could sneak into the Holy of Holies. They never stop to wonder if they should. John Hammond, he encountered a T-Rex and he lived. These brothers, Nadab and Abihu, they encounter the living God and they die in a consuming fire. What's any of that have to do with Good Friday? Let's read and consider this story together. And as we follow the, the smoke of God's consuming fire, we'll see it's drifting in the way of Calvary. Let's read from Leviticus 10 together. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uzziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near. Carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. 
Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering. And behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these has happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. We've been in Leviticus for a few weeks now, and it's, it's easy to get lost in all of it, tracking all the clothing, all the sacrifices, all the laws. Or maybe you're a guest tonight and you've got no context for what we're reading and what we're talking about right here. So let's pause and remind ourselves where we are in the story. First, maybe even in the, the grand story of Scripture. Bible, remember, starts in a garden with God dwelling among His creation. Dwelling with His people. But Adam and Eve sin, which means they're sent out. From God's presence. They're sent east of Eden. And the rest of the Bible then is the unfolding plan, the unfolding story of God's plan to send a Savior to rescue his people that we might once again dwell with God. And through Genesis, we see the faithfulness of God to his promises in spite of the relentless faithlessness of the people. Leads us up to Exodus where we have God redeeming for himself the people of Israel with the promise that he would be their God and they would be his people. We come to Leviticus where we've said the central question is how can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? And in answer to that question, God has graciously given us a few things. He's given us the law, directions for how a redeemed people relate to him how they reflect his character to one another and to the world around them. He's given them a mediator, Moses and the priests, a representative of the people before God and a representative of God before the people. They have a whole system of symbolic clothing, a turban and robe, ephod, names written on their chest and on their head, all these things to show them as representatives. And he gives this whole elaborate system of sacrifices, reminding them of their need for atonement from sin. And to stir their imaginations, to remind them that they're made for fellowship with God. And in the last few weeks, we've been in chapter 8 of Leviticus, where we saw the priests consecrated. Aaron and his four sons set apart for the work of God. Seven days, 
representing fullness, completion, fully set apart for God's work. In chapter 9, we see God's presence celebrated. The whole system is flipped on. This is the end of Leviticus 9. It says, Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and he blessed them. And he came down from the offering, the sin offering, and the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. When the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. They saw the glory of God and they worshipped. Brings us to chapter 10, where the priests are consumed. Everything had been going so well, and this chapter is just a giant record scratch in the story. And we're given several markers that force us to abruptly stop and contrast what was happening to what's happening right now. In chapter 8, we had this whole pattern of phrases telling us that Moses did as the Lord commanded. And now in chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu offer fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. In 9, we have fire coming down and consuming the burnt offering. And now we have fire coming down, consuming the priests. At the end of 9, we have the people shouting and singing in praise. In chapter 10, we have Aaron silent. At the end of 9, we have God's glory on display. Interestingly, we have the same thing in chapter 10. We'll read on and see what that means. But all this is happening in the same day. God's glory displayed, the people praise, and suddenly, silence. Something's gone terribly wrong. We saw the blessedness of access to God, but suddenly we're seeing this access also comes with significant danger. And we've got to understand both in order to understand what God is teaching us here. And so what was the sin of Nadab and Abihu? There are countless pages. You can spend a lot of time reading about what the sin of these two men was. They're two of Aaron's four sons. The period of consecration had just ended. They're allowed to be in the tabernacle. So what's going on? Well, in verse 9, God commands Aaron and his remaining two sons to abstain from alcohol, lest they die. So it could have been that the two guys got drunk and then started messing around near the tabernacle. Others suggest this, this strange fire, this unauthorized fire, means it wasn't fire taken from the altar of the ascension offering, which God's glory had lit. So maybe they were negligent. Maybe they were drunk and negligent. A little bit later on, after they die, we see Aaron's nephews are told to remove the bodies from the the front of the sanctuary. And that phrase, it's interesting, it's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe that, that curtain, that entrance into the Holy of Holies. If we flip forward to Leviticus 16, we see this. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they drew near before the Lord and died, and the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. So it seems like Nadab and Abihu might have tried to sneak into the Holy of Holies, this place where only the high priest could go, and even he only once a year. 
That may have been precipitated by drunken negligence. We don't know. We just know they tried to approach God on their own way instead of in the way that God had prescribed. And this is how the Lord responds. He consumes them in fire. In verse 3, he says, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Nadab and Abihu, they presume themselves worthy of experiencing God's presence. They'd missed the whole reality of all these instructions that God had given to his people. This new access to God opened up a new threat, judgment by way of death for profaning God's holiness. Only a holy people can enter God's holy presence. And Nadab and Abihu, they lacked any sort of reverent awe for God's holiness. Which itself creates a new problem. The tabernacle's been defiled. It needs to be restored. Death, as we've seen in Leviticus, it's the highest level of defilement. And so now we've got two bodies laying right inside the tabernacle, right up next to the Holy of Holies. So Aaron's cousins come and are told to carry the bodies outside the camp. Their dead bodies were unclean, and so they were taken outside the camp to that place where the useless parts of the sacrificial animals were taken. And this tension in Leviticus, it's going to drive the narrative for the next several weeks in our preaching, leading up to the Day of Atonement, that we need a way to cleanse the tabernacle itself from ongoing defilement. And while all this is happening, while the bodies are being taken out, Aaron and his sons are forbidden to mourn. Verse 6, Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, so this is the dad and these two brothers, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. So Moses instructs them to fully and visibly identify themselves with God's judgment. Any act of mourning was going to risk teaching the people of God that God's judgment was harsh, that it was wrong. They might have been tempted in their grief to blame God instead of their brothers, instead of their, his son for what had happened. Mourning at this moment would have taught something completely wrong about the nature and character of God. How does this story make you feel? Stop and think about that for a moment. For me, as, as you're thinking about that, this story makes me think of, of Uzzah. Remember the story of Uzzah? 2 Samuel 6, the, the ark is on a cart, which, again, forbidden by God. We weren't supposed to do that, but it's on a cart, and it's being carried into the city at David's instructions. 2 Samuel 6 says, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. God is angry. David is angry. I read these stories, and I'm a little bit angry. I, I don't get it. Like I read other parts, and I think God is love. God is kind. He's gracious. These 
stir something in us. There, it can stir doubt. It can stir confusion and anger. We're tempted to just wrongly picture God as some angry villain just waiting for a moment to exact his judgment. I mean, Uzzah, he, he, he just touched the ark. He was trying to keep it from falling to the ground. That seems like a pretty God-honoring thing. Nadab and Abihu, that they just wanted to experience God's presence. That seems like a pretty good thing. Look back at Leviticus 10, verse, verse 3, and then, and then 10 and 11 together. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. I will be sanctified or I will be shown to be holy and in my holiness, I will be glorified. Remember the difference between holy and unholy between clean and clean. Teach them the difference. The difference matters. God's reminding us who he is and who we are. He's telling us that nearness to God doesn't come at the expense of God's holiness. What does it mean for God to be holy? Holiness signifies that God is holy other The creator is distinct and separate from his creation. And a major part of that distinction, that separation, is his perfection, his purity. He's absolutely morally pure and absolutely distant from sinful creatures. The prophet Isaiah, he cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he says it three times for emphasis, God is really, really, really holy. By definition, God cannot be just a little bit holy. He's either perfection and separate in absolute ways, or he's not. He can't be holy in degrees. And so when his judgment comes in violent form on Nadab and Abihu, we're reminded that God is holy and we are not. God doesn't lay down his holiness in order to dwell among his people. But sin, it it seems small when God's holiness is small. So, brothers and sisters, flee from those small sins that you've grown used to. The sins we've we've grown comfortable with. Those ones that we're tempted to put the word just in front of or to quantify. I just lost my temper the one time. I was just being a little impatient. It's those sins that we so easily want to explain away. Every guy struggles with it. The ones we blame shift. Well, if my spouse hadn't, then I wouldn't. Or if my kids hadn't, then I wouldn't have. Whatever it might be, there's no small sins against a holy God. Sin, it seems small when we see God's holiness as small. But holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But praise God, the story isn't over. Pick it up back in verse 12. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left 
of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. So Moses is speaking again. He's giving instructions on how to complete the remaining portions of the tribute and the peace offerings. And all these, all these instructions had been previously given, but we, you can't really blame Moses for repeating himself here, can you? See, these, these were two of the sacrifices that were said earlier on to be a sweet aroma, a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. And the priest shared in eating this offering as a display of, of thanksgiving, of fellowship with God. The service of the priest was to continue in spite of the tragedy that had just occurred. Their priestly privilege was not forfeit. You see the grace in this? What patience our God has with us. Eleazar and Ithamar, they're taking the place of their brothers. The promises, the blessings, the provision of the Lord are going to continue. Yet again, the Lord is faithful in spite of our faithlessness. There's just a tiny little problem. One more problem of disobedience. See, you remember the liturgy was supposed to be purification offerings and then ascension and tribute offerings and then peace offerings. We need our guilt atoned for before we can enjoy fellowship with God. But they don't complete the sin offering. Look at verse 16. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering And behold, it was burned up, and he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy, and had been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded." The final act of the sacrifice, what they were commanded to do was for the priests to eat it. But they didn't. What's wrong with these guys? Maybe they're overcome with grief and just aren't thinking clearly. That would be understandable from a human perspective, right? They certainly don't seem to listen and obey terribly well. They've given thanks to God. They've celebrated fellowship with God, but they've left out a vital component of this sin offering. They were supposed to eat part of it. We learned this back in Leviticus 6. It said, this is the law of the sin offering in the place where the burnt offering is killed. Shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord? It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place, it shall be eaten. But instead of eating the sin offering, Eleazar and Ithamar burn it up. And somewhat understandably, Moses is angry. Interesting, the last time we saw Moses angry, that whole golden calf incident. Another time the Lord's glory and holiness was profaned. 
But Moses reminds them exactly what the Lord had commanded. They were to eat it, to bear the iniquity of the congregation, to make atonement for the people before the Lord. As mediators, they mirror the, the character, that the actions of God. The priest eats the sacrifice and takes upon himself the guilt of the people. See, Nadab and Abihu, they, they set aside God's holiness in an effort to enjoy his fellowship. It seems like these brothers are doing the same thing by offering the, the tribute and the peace offering without the sin offering. But there's a little more nuance here. Because if the priests were making the offering on behalf of the people, they were supposed to eat it. But if they offered it on behalf of themselves also, they were not to eat it, but to burn it up. We saw that back in chapter 4. So, so Moses is saying you, you should have eaten it because it was offered on behalf of the people. Aaron's got a good explanation though. He says, behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. We did it. We did what we were supposed to do. And yet such a thing as these has happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Such a thing as these has happened to me, Moses. My, I lost my sons today. Two of my sons are dead. I think in, the, in all of this, Aaron is seeing the reality of his own sin. If Aaron had eaten the sacrifices, it would have been as if he was saying, I have no sin. So by not eating the meat, Aaron and his sons were offering the sacrifice both for the people and for themselves. He had just seen what happened when people wrongly presume their sinlessness in front of God. He wanted no part of that judgment. Aaron's arguing they did it right. They followed the Lord's commands by not eating the meat. Moses listens. He approves. He agrees. See, Nadab and Abihu, they presumed their worth to be near God. So they were consumed by fire. Aaron and his sons knew their sin, and they were consumed with fear, with a reverent awe before a holy God. What Nadab and Abihu failed to see, what made Aaron tremble and worship right here, is that nearness to God doesn't come at the expense of his holiness. I will be sanctified. I will be proved holy, declares the Lord. These are the priests Israel got. Some who profane God's holiness, others who recognize their sins are part of the whole problem. Maybe this thing just isn't going to work. How can a holy God dwell among sinful people? He can't. We as sinful people need to be made holy so that we can dwell with a holy God. And in order to do that, we need a better priest we need a better sacrifice. Let's turn over to Hebrews 10 together. It's Hebrews 10, starting in verse 8. When he had said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these were offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. 
He, and speaking of Christ, Christ does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So the author, he begins by telling us that God didn't take pleasure in the sacrifices of the old covenant. That doesn't mean they were contrary to his will or that they weren't real. That they didn't actually work in some way. He's saying they were shadows of the real thing that was yet to come. They didn't fully and finally atone for our sin. But Jesus, in perfectly obeying the will of God, offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. And now, once for all, sinless people have been made, they've been sanctified, made holy by the death of our Savior, Jesus And when the author says we've been sanctified, he's not talking about that progressive change that happens as believers. He's talking about something that happened instantly. A change in status for all believers at the moment of conversion. Through a more perfect sacrifice, through a perfect sacrifice, we have been made holy. Those who are in Christ stand before God holy and clean, so there's no longer any need for a sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. This better sacrifice, it comes by a better priest. He said every priest stands daily because their work never ends. Have you thought about that as we've been going through Leviticus? How often they would have had to have been doing these sacrifices? How many animals they went through? How much blood was constantly on the ground? They're offering sacrifices standing daily over and over and over but Christ sits because at the cross, he said, it's finished. The priests offer those sacrifices, plural, but Christ offered a single sacrifice. He's not just contrasting the better sacrifice. He's showing us a better priesthood in Christ. Christ accomplished what Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar and everybody who came after them could never do. He sat down after perfecting us. And so Christ spends his time now, not sacrificing over and over again, but triumphantly reigning over his creation. So nearness to God didn't come at the expense of his holiness. Nearness to God came at the expense of his son. You think back to the, the beginning of our story. Nadab and Abihu, they were desperate to get in. They wanted just that glimpse of God's holiness. They tried to get into the holy place because they just wanted to experience God. Look at Hebrews ten nineteen. Just see what God has given us in Christ. 
He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. See, Leviticus, it's been showing us the the blessing and the dangers of this new access. There was real grace. There was real access to God through the law, through the priests, through the sacrifices. But that system merely bridged the gap in Christ. It's been abolished. Believers, by virtue of Christ's sacrifice, you've been made holy. And you can now enter God's holy presence freely and boldly. We can draw near with confidence. We don't have to be afraid. The curtain is torn in two. So in full assurance, without reservation, without hesitation, we can run to God. See, we don't need a priest to offer sacrifices on our behalf We have one who has offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin and declared it's finished. We don't need a spotless lamb to lay in our place. We have a savior who hung in our place. We don't need a priest dressed in linen and fine robes. We have one who is stripped naked. We don't need a priest who wears a turban on his head. We have one who wore a a crown of thorns on his head. Rather than a sign that said holy to the Lord above him, Christ had a sign that mocked him. Rather than allowing us to be justly consumed for our sins, he suffered outside the camp and consumed the cup of God's wrath in our place. I will be sanctified, declares the Lord. And in Christ, he has sanctified you that you might dwell with him forever. So sinner, come to him today. The the way is open. Believer, come to him today. The, The way is open. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with your glory, Lord. We confess today that we've seen you as small. We've, we've profaned your holiness. We've made sin just a little problem. But the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from our creator who, who made us, who knows us, who loves us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that that impossible chasm between sinful people and a holy God has been obliterated at the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for that beautiful, that scandalous night when you willingly laid down your life that you might bring us to God. Thank you that your righteousness is now ours. Thank you that that cry that it is finished. God, help us to remember this grace to run to you. We can approach you. We can come to you. We can draw near to you with confidence, with full assurance, not in ourselves, but in Christ, in Christ alone. Amen.